just a minute, I'm going to read to you some of God's promises that uh, we find in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, but before I read that to you, I'm, I don't know what your week uh, has been like, uh, but I've had one of those weeks where like, I feel like what has kind of defined me is my failures, uh, my unfaithfulness. There have been moments where I've spoken too quickly and too harshly at times. There have been times where I've not really considered the full impact of my actions uh, and, and, and my words. And in those weeks, I can feel like that I'm just surrounded by my own failures and my own unfaithfulness. And what's also true is we're all pretty good at seeing everybody else's failures and unfaithfulness, uh, aren't we? Um, when we gather for worship, we are being reminded that God is always faithful that his promises and his word are always true. And the offer that we have from him when we come to worship him is one of grace, one of mercy, one of forgiveness, one of bringing our failures to him and seeing that the blood of Christ has covered all of our sin. This is Jeremiah 31. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. These words are full and final in Jesus, beloved. Turn to Exodus chapter 12, um, or it's also uh, in your, your bulletin as well, too. So you could do like me and just have the, the, the bulletin right there in front of you. We're going to take a look at uh, Exodus 12 today. And, but before we do that, um, remember that together this year, we're going through the whole Bible together. And we're thinking through the four-part story uh, of Scripture that... Um, God created everything, and that he made everything good. That we have rebelled and brought sin and destruction into God's good creation. But God pursues us in his grace to redeem us in the blood of Jesus. And that Jesus is coming again, and he is going to restore all things. So we're continuing with this sort of 30,000-foot uh, flyover of thinking through this story uh, of Scripture. And this morning, we're coming to Exodus uh, chapter 12. So I'm going to read this for us, and then, uh, and then we'll dive in. But this is God's word for us this morning. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire, 
with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Uh, Let's pray together and ask God to help us understand his word this morning. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would bring life to our imaginations this morning, that you would uh, enliven the imaginations of our minds uh, and of our hearts uh, to see your redemption, to see that our sin really is deep and really is big, um, and it's costly, um, and your redemption is bigger than our sin in Jesus. And so we pray that you would help us to see Jesus this morning, that you would help us to see that it is true. He has come to us. Our Jesus is strong and he is kind to lead us to repentance and belief. And we pray that for ourselves, for our own hearts this morning. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. What we have in Exodus 12 this morning is the defining picture of how redemption is accomplished. Like that's our, that's our main thing this morning. This is the defining picture of how redemption is accomplished. Everything after Genesis 3 is leading to this moment that we just read about. God's redemption. That rebellion is actually dealt with. Um, And so what I want us to start doing this morning is I want us to start by tracing some of the story up to this point. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the past, the present, and the future uh, with Exodus 12. So let's dig into the past a little bit. If you'll remember a few weeks ago, we looked at Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis 3, what we saw was Adam and Eve had been made in God's image that everything was good, everything was wonderful and beautiful, and they decided to rebel against God, against an all-loving, all-caring, all-giving, only good God. They rebelled, and in their rebellion came destruction, came chaos. Uh, God's word says shame came, sin came into God's good creation. And God's response to that is mercy and grace. It was to pursue Adam and Eve and to make a way for there to be relationship there that they had severed. And the way that God does that is that he covers them with the skin of animals. And what we see in that picture is that it takes the blood of another to cover sin. It takes the blood of another to restore Adam and Eve's relationship to God, to each other, and to the place where God had put them, to creation. If we skip forward 
and look at Genesis 15, which we looked at just a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember God is with Abraham. And he takes Abraham outside and he says to Abraham, you see all these stars up in the sky? Let me tell you, your offspring are going to be larger than all of these stars in the sky. That I'm going to build a people from you, Abraham. And we also saw in that that God makes a covenant with Abraham. A, a, a covenant relationship. A commitment that God makes to his own word. To his promises and to the relationship that he has with Abraham. And we got to look at what that covenant required. And if you remember, Abraham had to take a, a, a ram and a goat and a turtle dove and a pigeon. And he had to break them in half and set them and make a path. Uh, their blood had to be spilled in order for this path to be made. And if you remember, uh, Abraham has this heavy, dark sleep that comes upon him. And then he sees God and smoke and fire actually walking through this path that's been created by these animals and the spilling of their blood. And what we see in that is that this relationship, this covenant relationship requires the blood of another. And what God is saying when he walks between in that path is he's saying, Abraham, if you break this covenant, if your children break this covenant, if the people that come from you break this covenant... May the debt be on me. Like the blood of these animals right here, may that debt of your breaking and your rebellion be on me. These images set the stage for what we just read in Exodus chapter 12. For God's defining picture of how redemption is accomplished. And so we move forward into the present. Um, and... We find ourselves in the land of Egypt, which is where we actually left off last week, right? We looked at Joseph, and we looked at God's people coming to Egypt because there was a famine. Uh, the, the people of Abraham find themselves in Egypt. And then what happens is, uh, is Joseph dies, um, and so there's no one in, like, in, the, in the kingdom to speak on behalf of God's people. Um, but what happens with God's people as they are in Egypt, if you look back at Exodus chapter 1, it says that they were fruitful and they multiplied, which is the same language that God uses as he commands Adam and Eve to go into the garden and to be fruitful and to multiply. They are remembering the four-part story. They are living into the four-part story. And the king of Egypt, a guy who we know by the name of Pharaoh, he sees this. He sees God's people, the Israelites, growing and growing and growing. And he starts thinking to, them, to himself, these people could pose a threat to me. Like they could get so big that they could overtake me and my kingdom. And so what Pharaoh decides to do, he's like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to enslave these people. And we're going to oppress them. We're going to make work really, really hard on them. I'm, I'm going to have them build my kingdom, my agenda, my plans. And what continues to happen, Israel keeps growing. They keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so Pharaoh's like, look, I've got to get control of this population. And so 
he decides that for population control, what he's going to do is he's going to have the Hebrew midwives kill all of the male babies that are born. That's how he's going to get a handle on the population. And then we run into this character that we see in verse 1 of chapter 12, a man named Moses, a guy named Moses. Moses is actually born into this story. He is one of those male children that are born after Pharaoh has given his edict. And Moses actually survives through a set of incredibly miraculous events that we don't have time to dip into today. But I would encourage you, go back, read these first 11 uh, chapters. It's really, really amazing. But Moses survives, and he actually ends up finding himself inside of Pharaoh's house. Like, he grows up in the royal palace. Like, almost as a son of the Pharaoh, of the king of Egypt. And one day, Moses is outside of the royal palace. He's in the city, and he sees that the Israelites, his people, are being treated incredibly harshly by the Egyptians. He sees that they're being abused and oppressed. And he comes across one of the Egyptian slave guards, and he sees him mistreating one of these Israelites, a people of his own, and he, he gets really angry. Anger wells up inside of Moses, and he kills the slave guard. And then that means Moses has got to get out of Dodge. So he, like, he, he flees Egypt, and he goes into the hill country. It's called Midian. While he's in Midian, he gets married to a woman named Zipporah, and he becomes basically a goat herder. That's what Moses' job is. And one day, as he is out in the hill country, he comes upon this bush that's on fire. But the bush isn't being, what God's word says, consumed, meaning that it's not burning up. It's just this, this big fire. And what happens in that event and in that moment is Moses is encountering the one true God of all creation. He is encountering the God of his people. He is encountering the God who spoke everything into existence. And God speaks to Moses in that moment, and he tells Moses, Moses, I see what's happening to my people. I've heard their cries for mercy. I know, I know what they are going through, and I want you to know, Moses, I am going to deliver my people from the slavery and bondage and oppression that they are in in Egypt. And then he instructs Moses, he said, the way that I'm going to do is I'm going to send you back to Egypt. And you're going to be my mouthpiece to Pharaoh, to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses, he fights that. He's like, look, I don't, I don't speak very well. Like, you don't want me. And so God says, all right, okay, you and your brother Aaron, okay? So he sends Moses and Moses' brother Aaron back to Egypt to tell Pharaoh to let God's people go that they may serve and they may worship him. And, and they even communicate to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, if you, don't, if you don't obey, if you rebel against the one true God of all creation, what's going to happen is judgment is going to come, come upon you. Judgment is going to come upon you. And ultimately the way that's going to work out is that your, your firstborn is going to be taken from you. Let my people go. And so what ensues is Moses and Aaron have this back and forth with Pharaoh. 
where they plead with Pharaoh to let God's people go. Multiple pleas. And the plea is, is really this, Pharaoh, this is the one true God. Obey him. S- submit to, to what he is telling you to do. Lay down your plans. Lay down your agendas. Follow God who offers mercy and grace. And at each juncture, Pharaoh refuses. He refuses And Pharaoh ultimately believes that obedience and service and worship, those are things that belong to him. Pharaoh really at the end of the day believes that he's the one who's in charge. Really at the end of the day, Pharaoh believes that he is God. And it is everyone's duty to serve and to worship him. And at each juncture, God proves himself to be true to his word. Because the way that Moses and Aaron communicate with Pharaoh is they tell Pharaoh, Pharaoh, if you don't let God's people go, then this plague is going to come upon you and upon this land and upon your people. What, uh, here, here's to name a few of the plagues. You're going to send a bunch of frogs all over the land. You're going to send a bunch of locusts all over the land. Um, boils, you know, like boils that you get, get on your skin. And at each juncture, Pharaoh refuses and God's word stands true. God is proving to Pharaoh, like, I am the one true God who is ultimately in control of everything. And what sticks out to me in in these interactions where Moses and Aaron are God's mouthpiece to Pharaoh is God's continued posture of mercy and grace. I mean, he gives Pharaoh so many chances to, to submit his, his continued posture of mercy and grace, and Pharaoh, every time, refuses. He chooses only destruction for himself and for his people. And ultimately what happens is that God gives Pharaoh over to that. He gives Pharaoh over to his sin and to his rebellion. You know, God, God does the same thing with us as well, too. All right. So if you and I walked out of these doors and we got on uh, on Memorial and we started heading towards Aiden and Kinston and we drove consistently 20 miles an hour over the speed limit, what's going to happen? You can answer that. You're at best you're going to get a ticket, right? At, at best you're going to get pulled over by the cops and you're going to get going to get a ticket. Well, Exodus 12 is the culmination of all of that story that we just went through, which we just covered the first 11 chapters of, uh, of Exodus. Exodus 12 is the culmination of that. And we have redemption pictured and defined for us. God's people have been enslaved. They're being oppressed. The ex- the, their existence is unbearable. And God instructs Moses, this is how I'm going to deliver my people. In verses 3 through 6 of chapter 12, God tells Moses to tell his people, take a lamb, all right? Take a lamb, each house, take a lamb. If, you're, if your house isn't big enough to eat an entire lamb, join up with your neighbor. So get your two families together, and then y'all take a lamb together. That lamb needs to be a year old, like it can be a sheep or a goat, but it needs to be, it needs to be a year old, and it needs to be with out blemish. 
And you're to keep this. You're to keep this lamb until the 14th day of the month. And then at twilight on the 14th day, all of Israel combined in their homes are to kill this lamb. And then in verses 8 through 12, God instructs his people how they are actually supposed to consume this lamb that they have just killed. They're supposed to cook the lamb, roasted. Don't eat it raw. That sounds kind of rough, right? Don't eat it raw. Don't boil it in water. You're supposed to roast it over an open fire, the whole thing. And you're supposed to eat the entire thing too. And if you can't consume the entire thing in one night, then you're supposed to burn it. You're supposed to burn what is left over before the, the, the morning. And, and he also instructs them on like what manner they are supposed to eat this, this lamb. He says, eat it in haste, meaning like don't dilly-dally around. Like eat it, you know, eat, eat fast. And also you need to eat it with your, with your belt tightened. And that, you can imagine as they continue to eat it, that belt's got to loosen a little bit. But um, with your belt tightened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand ready to go. Because what's going to happen is that God is going to deliver them and bring them out of Egypt to worship and to serve him. And in verses 7 and 13, God instructs them what they're supposed to do with the blood of this lamb that they kill. He says, look, take the blood of the lamb, put it on the doorposts, and put it over the, uh, over the lintel in your homes. And the homes that have the blood of the spotless lamb over their doorposts and their lintels, I will pass over those homes. Death will not come to that home. But if there's no blood, then my judgment is going to come for rebellion, for turning away from me. My judgment is going to come upon Egypt, who Pharaoh has, I've given him so many chances, and he's just refused and refused and refused. And so judgment is going to come if there's no blood on the doorposts. This is the picture of redemption, beloved. Do you see it? Exodus 12 is the same as Genesis 3 and Genesis 15. That there is judgment for rebellion and sin. And that it takes the blood of another to pay the debt that is owed for that. And if you don't have the blood of another then the debt is, is on you, it's on me. And the invitation is to follow God's provision of mercy and grace. But if you don't, then judgment is going to fall on you. Choose God's mercy and grace because the debt is too big for you and I, any of us, to be able to repay. It must come at the expense of the blood of another. Now, I don't know about you, but if, all right, just jumping right into Exodus 12 here, okay? Uh, this isn't exactly a very familiar story um, to me. Like, I, I don't think about, like, this is part of my daily life, right? I don't know about you, but I don't raise goats. Uh, I'm not slaughtering them and putting blood everywhere and all that. And so, like, as I read Exodus 12, I'm kind of like, man, it's, it's hard to get into this. 
it's hard to get to get into uh, into this story and to put ourselves into this story. And I think that there are reasons why it's hard for us to get into this story, and I think that that, that those reasons often actually have to do with the world that we live in today, like right now, the culture and context um, that we that we live in currently. And I think that one of the things that makes us makes it hard for us to identify with this and to see how this like applies to us is that we live in a day and an age and in a culture that does not have a, a very robust view of sin. It doesn't have a very robust view of sin. Here's, here's what I mean by that, okay? I think that we live in a day and an age and a culture, and, and let me remind you, we are the culture, so this isn't like an us versus them sort of thing. Where we look at sin and we think, it's just not that big a deal. Are we really? Is it that big a deal? Like, is it, is it such a big deal that blood has to be spilled? And that's a part of the narrative that we, that, that we live in. We take, like, driving 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. And we think to ourselves, well, that's a dumb law. Like, that shouldn't apply to me. My, 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 uh, my capabilities are incredible. Like, I shouldn't have to uh, obey that law. But the problem is, is when you and I drive 20 miles an hour all the way down Memorial, what we're actually doing is we are putting at risk other image bearers of God in his world. We think it's not a big deal for me, for myself, but, but let me ask you this. If somebody else flies by you at 20 miles an hour over the speed limit, it's a big deal then, isn't it, Right? But we live in a day and an age where it's like, it's just not that big of a deal. Or here's another way. Here's another way that we, um, that we get at this not having a very robust view of sin is that we say, well, it's not really hurting anyone, right? Like, it's, it's not really doing any damage to, to, to anyone. It's not really hurting anyone. And I, I've heard, uh, honestly, I've heard this excuse. I'll, say, I'll call it an excuse used oftentimes with, with people who, who struggle with an addiction to pornography. And they say to themselves and say to me, like, but, but I'm not hurting anybody with this. Except that the people that you are watching are having to destroy their own bodies, their own emotions, their own souls for your consumption. And then if we dig a little bit deeper... You cannot walk away from that interaction without your heart being destroyed. And what ends up happening is that we have a hard time seeing other people as those who bear God's image in his world. And rather, we view people through the context of how they are serving me and my desires. We're actually dehumanizing other image bearers of God when we say, but I'm not hurting anybody. Here's the third way. It's, I think that we live in the day and age of, sorry, just sorry. And then we just really want to kind of like move on from that. Look, this is, this is me. Just this past week. Carrie had been doing some research on, on something. She had spent time researching something that we are ultimately going to need to get as we make decisions for the future and everything and all of that. She came to me with this, 
and, and she was expressing the research that she had done and everything, and I immediately went into, let me see how I can attack all of those little parts and pieces to explain to her why that's not the best idea, but I've got a better one over here. And look, that's one issue, right? But, but the other issue is that, is that okay, I realize mm, she spent a lot of time on that, but my immediate move is sorry. And, and what's in that, what's in that sorry is really a whitewashing of what has just happened. Really, I'm actually just uncomfortable with the fact that I've had to be confronted with the fact that I've hurt her deeply, that I've made her feel insecure about herself. That's what happens when we just say, sorry, and we just want to move on. We don't really want to consider the implications of what our words and our actions actually have, that we might have actually injured another image bearer of God. How about you? Where, where in your life is, is, is it just not that big of a deal? Or I'm not really hurting anybody. Or where in your life are you just like, let's get the sorry out of the way and let's, let, let's just move on. Because I don't want to deal with all the implications of all of that stuff. And we live in a day and an age that doesn't have a very robust view of sin. And let, let me tell you this. I think this is also true in the church. I think that, that a lack of a robust view of sin also exists inside of the church. And here's how this goes. Instead of sin not being a big deal, sin's a really, really big deal. But sin is defined by man-made rules. Um, maybe some of you grew up like this. I did. You had to dress a certain way in order to be at church. Or, or, or maybe you grew up in a context that said, well, you're only allowed to listen to Christian music or watch Christian movies. Or you're only allowed to have Christian friends. I remember e- even being, you know, this is post-college and in a, in, in a small group setting of, uh, uh, of people. And we were discussing um, I grew up in the kind of, kind of tradition that said that any consumption of, uh, of alcohol at all is sinful. Okay, that's, the, that, that's the kind of context that, 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 that I grew up in. And I was having a hard time as I was, as I was reading the scriptures, um, like reconciling that. It genuinely was, was having a hard time reconciling that. And was in a, it was in a group of other college-age students. We were discussing uh, this, the, this issue. And, and I, I remember saying, like, okay, but what do we make of, like, the beginning of the book of John where Jesus is at this wedding. And the first miracle that he performs is he turns water into wine. And I mean, like, I remember genuinely asking that. And one of the responses of my peers was, well, but if you read it, you notice that it doesn't say that Jesus drank any of that wine. And so I was like, oh, so Jesus is just a bartender then. Like, that's what, that, that, that's, what he, that, that's what he does. And look, don't hear what I'm not saying. The Bible is absolutely clear about this fact. The overconsumption of alcohol is a sin, okay? Drunkenness is a sin. But you get what I'm talking about, like we, 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 we can go too far with stuff, and then we define sin by what my man-made rules are. We even do this. We have our own swear words, don't we? 
Words that are acceptable for us to say when we're really upset and words that we're not. And what that ends up turning into ultimately is we end up having this low-level feeling like we're just a little bit better than everybody else. We think we're just a little bit better than everybody else. When we take on a man-centered view of what's right and wrong, and then others don't meet that expectation, then we walk away thinking, I'm just a little bit better than they are. You know, honestly, this is actually one way to know if you're only living in a two-part story. This is one way to know that because this mentality is actually devoid of seeing the image of God in other people. Because here's how it goes. We relate to people based on what we perceive to be their deficiencies. What we perceive to be the things that they, uh, that they are doing or being wrong in others. And how people need to just do or be better or right. But that's actually governed by my standards. It's actually something that's governed by me and what I think. We refuse, when we do this, we refuse to start where God starts. We refuse to start where God's story starts, recognizing the image of God in every human being. And when we do this, what we're missing is that sin is so much bigger than just a list of things that you and I can create. That sin is actually a condition that is deep down inside of our hearts. And when, we, and when we act like sin is just a list, what we're ultimately communicating to people is that what people really need is just to clean up and to meet my standards. Instead of God made everything really, really good. That's why sin and rebellion makes everything really, really bad and that what we all need is Jesus to meet us there and to show us the path of life. You see, Exodus 12 refuses to let us live without a robust view of sin. Refuses to let us live without a robust view of sin. When we think sin is just no big deal, we try to sanitize it. We miss the fact that what sin really is is an active rebellion against an all-loving God. That what sin really is, is to reject all that is good. But when we come to a deeper understanding of that, that, that like sin is this condition of our hearts, then, 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 we, then we begin to understand why the debt is so costly. Why it's so costly. We begin to understand the sharpness and the detail that we see, see here in Exodus 12. It helps us understand what Pharaoh is really saying with his rebellion. He's really saying, I'm bigger, I'm better, I'm more in control than God is. And Pharaoh misses it. And we do too. We do too if we don't think that sin is that big of a deal. The debt's too big. You can't repay it. I can't repay it. It can only be repaid by the blood of of another. It can only be repaid God's way. Exodus 12 also shows us that sin defined by my rules and my ways is also not robust enough. 
It's not a big enough view of sin because God tells Israel, you need this blood on your doorposts. You see what God's doing there? Israel, you're not any better than the Egyptians. You're not any better. You too are rebellious and sinful. And look, we're going to get to see that play out. And without the blood of a spotless lamb, the judgment that is due for that rebellion is on you. Redemption means that that no one is any better than another. That all of our sin is so serious and it is so deep that it requires blood to cover it. You see, but God also instructs the Israelites here that this is something that you have to do every year. You got to come back to this. You got to keep coming back to this again and again, year after year. That the blood of a lamb is not full and it's not final. It ultimately is not enough. That points us to the reality that we need something full and final. It points us and shifts us into the future. And here's the future. If we jump forward and we look at the end of the book of Matthew, the end of the book of Luke, we see that Jesus observed this Passover. He was obedient to this command and all of God's other commands. He celebrated the Passover of Exodus 12. And it was on a night that not long before that, or not long after that, excuse me, he would go to the cross. And what he did is he gathered his disciples together and he celebrated the meal of redemption. And he expressed to them, the bread that you see here, it's my body that's broken for you. The blood that's in this cup, it is, it is, it is my blood in the new covenant that we read about in Jeremiah 31. And those things represent God's judgment poured out for sin, for rebellion. But he... If you go to Matthew 26, to Luke 22, you'll notice something. Jesus doesn't say anything about the lamb. How could he miss that? <laughs> like, Jesus, how, how, could you, how could you miss the lamb? The lamb means redemption. The lamb means redemption. Like, how, how, could, you, how could you miss talking about the lamb and the blood of the lamb that's on the doorpost that we're looking at right there? What Jesus is doing is profound, beloved. He doesn't talk about the lamb because he is the lamb. He is the spotless lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Yours and mine, all the way down to the dregs. All the way down to the depths of it. And he spreads his blood over the doorposts and the lentils of mine and yours. Hearts that are rebellious and are wandering, and God pursues us in Jesus, and he provides a full and final redemption for you and for me that we have to have. Jesus pays the debt for us. God, knowing that we, like Abraham, like Israel, the people that came from Abraham and the people that will come after us, we will break our relationship. We will break our covenant relationship. But God's promise stands true. He said he would take the debt on himself. 
And in Jesus, he does. He takes the debt on himself in Jesus. And what's on offer to you and me this morning is to belong to Jesus. Find life in him. Set down your agendas. Set down your plans. And find that in God, what we have is life in its fullness. What we have is his mercy and his grace to us in Jesus. And we can live in light of that. And we can live every single day. We can walk up tomorrow, wake up tomorrow morning and know and remind ourselves that in Jesus, his blood speaks a better word than mine and your sin. The debt's been paid, beloved. God wants us to leave here knowing that in Christ... The debt and the burden of our sin is lifted and it is placed upon him. And that he frees us to live in light of that grace, of that mercy. And so hear this blessing from God's word and try to live this week like you really truly believe it. Because it is true, in Jesus the Lord will bless you and he will keep you. This week his countenance is upon you means that his smile is upon you. He looks at you as sons and daughters, and he will be gracious to you. And in the age to come forever and ever, God's presence is with us, and he will make us whole. He will give us peace all because of Jesus. Go in his peace.